This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. Okay, uh, you don't even need to get out your Bibles unless you'd like to. I think it's a great thing to do that so you can mark them up. But, but the sermon text is printed right in your bulletin. So if you'll just look at that, um, this is from the English Standard Version. And uh, this is our last sermon in Luke for a while. We're going to take a break till Advent of next year. And in the meantime, we're going to be doing the Book of Romans. So this summer and fall, we'll be in the Book of Romans. So this is Luke 9, 37 through 50. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So you might want to follow along um, in uh, another version on your phone or in your, or in your printed Bible because the verses are not in this and I'll be referring to the verses. So just if you want to follow along with the verses, it might help to have uh, one. There's plenty of versions on the phone um, or a, a real one like Austin has here. So this, uh, this 
This happens um, the day, like right after the transfiguration. Um, they've just come down the mountain. And um, if you remember from last week, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up there to the mountain with him, and they saw him in all of his glory, and now they're coming down the mountain to be with the rest of the disciples. And it says in verse 37, when they had come down, a great crowd met him. Now, what's the crowd doing there? The crowd is there to see some drama, as often is the case in the stories of Jesus. And it's not always a good thing. Uh, It's kind of like rubberneckers on the highway that are looking over and slowing down to see a wreck. Um, This crowd is partly there just to see uh, what's going on with this demon and this boy. And it says in verse 38, Behold, which is always the gospel writer's way of turning your attention to something with drama. They say, Behold, look, a man from the crowd cried out. This is a, a desperate young father, and this is his only child, and it's a young boy. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And if you look in verse 42, there's a word there that's, that uh, is for boy. So this is a, I don't know how old exactly, but let's say somewhere in the range of uh, maybe 6 to 12. Definitely not a teenager quite yet, but, um, but also not a little tiny child. But look at what this uh, little boy is having happen to him. Behold, verse 39, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And that's a really hard verse uh, to read if you're a parent and just think about that. If you have a a child um, that age, I mean, it's hard enough if you have a child that has a medical condition um, where anything like that is happening. Um, But imagine if you knew as the dad that this was not just a medical condition, but in this case, in some ways combined with some personal a malevolent spirit, um, like a bully on a playground, hurting your child, throwing him to the ground. It says in verse 42, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. So this is, uh, this is serious evil that Jesus is encountering. He's just been on the mountain. Now he comes down the mountain, kind of re-entry into uh, real life. And what he encounters is, uh, in some ways, the empire in full force. Uh, the empire is um, something that we often refer to here as something like the world um, or a combination of uh, the world out there, our own sinful nature here, all the demons and the devil, that whole thing. Um, it's, this is one of the very few times you actually see Jesus being weary and frustrated uh, because I think he's experiencing again like the full force of the opposition against him. In verse 41, he cries out, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long do I have to be down here with you? So he's frustrated. And uh, the, the, the word generation is debated by scholars. What, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the disciples there? Is he talking about the demon? Is he talking about the crowd? Um, what exactly is he referring to? What is he frustrated at? And I think that the answer is all three. Um, I think that, again, like I said earlier, it's this combination of the disciples are frustrating him, the crowd frustrates him. The, the fact that there's personal evil hurting children really frustrates him. All these things are combined. And, and he's, just, uh, he's just weary of the empire, weary of the, the evil that is around all of us. And so uh, what I want to look at is, is first that the empire, and then I want to look at the way that the king comes in and he has this secret weapon. Uh, he has this power that he uses against the empire. So first of all, the... Uh, 
the empire. I'm not going to talk much about the demon anymore. I've kind of finished with that. But I want to talk about if the demon is more of the uh, the overt, the face of the empire, then the the the, the disciples are the ones uh, where um, you see the empire in more of a covert way, probably more dangerous way. It's more hidden. It's more cloaked in virtue. Uh, but you see the religious pride in the disciples. First of all, they couldn't cast out the demon, even though Jesus gave them the power to do that earlier. So there's a, there's a matter of uh, a lack of boldness there. Um, they're not using the power he gave them. But in, even worse, in verse 46, you see, um, you see the way that the empire can get into even religious people, uh, even devout um, people who follow Jesus. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, if you notice that argument, it's not about being great. It's about being the greatest. And it's the comparison that's really sinister here. Um, it's the comparison that drives the empire forward. It's like the piston being fired. It's always competing, competing, competing about who's the best. Who is the best behaved child in the house right now? You know, children, sibling rivalry is powerful. And children are, you know, you might be comparing yourself to your brother or your sister about who's behaved the best, or what household is flourishing the most, or what parent is being the most creative right now with their uh, coronavirus situation. Or a big one right now is like, who is the bravest medical professional? And um, I love seeing the videos of people cheering medical professionals. And, uh, and I like deeply, deeply respect and admire um, what medical professionals are doing right now. But there's a dark side of all that, which is just the way that the, the greatest virtue, the sacrifice, that's the very place where people compare themselves. And so um, if that is you, um, I know that there's a temptation that's there to be like, you know, we're, we're the ones who are doing the most frontline work or we're, we're the ones interacting with the, the patients who are the sickest or whatever it is. Um, they're, they're, even in the, what I'm saying, even the best places, um, pastors certainly are like this. Um, there's this. There's this comparison. There's like a, who gets the most points at the scoreboard. Um, these virtue games that the empire plays. And um, I know for myself, the only reason I actually began to work in high school to get good grades my junior year is because my friend um, Charles Walker was in my AP history class and I wanted to get a better grade than him. That's the only reason I actually got serious at all in high school. And so um, there's this nature of, of, of comparison and wanting to defeat the other or get on top of the other, go higher than the other, be superior to the other. And the worst manifestation of, of all of this is, um, is like who prays the most or who does the most for the church or who's the most reliable at showing up to things, who knows the most scripture. It's the, it's the best parts, um, it's the best virtues that create the worst comparisons. And that's what the disciples are doing here. I mean, Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, he's, you know, the John has just seen the glory of Christ. And now John, who is the beloved disciple, by the way, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the one who was apparently the one that Jesus felt the most of a kindred spirit with, if you will. Um, John, in verse 49, is the one who gets all territorial and says, uh, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. And Jesus is like, you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. What are you doing? And John is being like, this guy is treading on our turf. 
You know, what is this guy is 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 taking some of our glory away. And um I actually find that kind of encouraging because um because if if John was like the greatest pastor to ever live, uh it just helps me to know that that I'm not completely sick um as a pastor. And I'm sure you don't uh struggle with this at all, Austin. But <laughs> some of us, some pastors can be pretty territorial. And I remember uh finding out um a that a church in, in uh, the, the Triangle was planting a church here. And, and we talked about this. We had to, Austin had to pro- help me process through this. But um, I had that feeling that John has, you know, Master, I see someone coming to cast out demons in your name, and I'm trying to stop him because he's not with us. Um, this is a huge problem among pastors. And I just, it, it's frightening to think about how much pastoral ministry is driven by that. Um, so the empire is there, and it is, that's the, the worst part of all, is it gets into even the best stuff. Like, even the very best stuff, it gets down in there. And so it's this, it's this like, uh, comparison, pride, superiority, arrogance, vanity, whatever you want to call it, that mix um, that Jesus comes against with, uh, with his secret weapon, uh, you know, which is his death ray to the empire. And, uh, and his secret weapon is in verse 44, and I love how he begins, like, Okay, let these words sink in. I'm about to tell you something that's got to sink down deep into you. And that is that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going right into um, the belly of the beast. He's going right into Jerusalem to be killed. This is where he turns from Mount Hermon to go down to Jerusalem. And he's telling them, like, I don't know what's going on in your hearts right now, but I'm telling you, I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. And it's that humility um, of his own deliverance into the hands of men, his own giving himself up. Uh, he gave himself for the world. And it's that willing giving himself up to be delivered to the hands of men that, that is the humility that has overturned the empire and is still at this very moment uh, all over the place sabotaging and undermining uh, the empire, and that might seem exaggerated to you that I'm saying that because of what I just said about my own heart. Um, you might be saying, like, I look, I'm looking around at the world. I don't see a lot of uh, overturning of the empire. But I would say um, the reason that you don't see it is because the king has been so thoroughly successful in his mission, and he has changed our vision so much that um, we can't even see it. Um, it's like these glasses I have on, you know, I don't notice them about 98% of the day. Um, I only notice them when there's some smudge on them. And I think that um, we, we, don't, we don't even notice that we have the glasses of Christ on, that, his, that the humility, the vision, that his ethical vision of reality, which is, which is to prize humility, to prize the poor, the blessed are the poor in spirit, um, the only reason I, I notice this territorialism and this arrogance is because of the Son of Man who has come. And his victory is so great that it has just completely influenced the world to begin to think this way. Um, again, think of Caesar or, um, or Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or Pilate or Herod saying, um, I am about to be delivered. You know, that's that's a moral revolution. I'm about to be delivered over into the hands of men. The king of kings. I mean, the son of man is Daniel 7, um, 
prophet Daniel chapter 7. It's his vision of the great world ruler, like the ultimate one, the powerful one. And Jesus, again, I said this a few weeks ago, he's, he's taking the Son of Man and then being delivered, these two completely opposite things, and he's smashing them together, and he's saying that the, I am redefining what greatness is, that a truly great human being is one uh, who, is, who is able to give himself over to be delivered, who's that powerful and that strong. And he, he makes here uh, self-abasement and humility a cardinal virtue. I mean, just think about the Academy Awards. If, um, if somebody won an Academy Award and went up there in front of, uh, of the auditorium and began to talk about how they were great and how um, the reason that film was so good is because of their acting job, I mean, they, they would be completely trashed by the media. People would hate them for doing that. Uh, or if, uh, if a, the president gets up there at a press conference and talk, whenever he talks about how great he is, uh, the media absolutely hates him for that. And, and that's because the only reason that we, we think that it's, it's bad to be arrogant and vain and proud like that is because of the Son of Man. Um, because if you go back in history, that's not the way the Romans thought of things. That's not the way the Greeks or the Spartans or whoever. Um, this is a, currently my favorite historian. His name's Tom Holland. He's British. Uh, he's an agnostic, but he's kind of moving towards faith, I think. He wrote this book just a few months ago called Dominion which I absolutely loved. I highly recommend Dominion to you. It's about the story of Christianity. And he says, our moral and ethical assumptions are bred of a very specific Christian tradition. Look at Sparta, the model for antiquity, the model for the Enlightenment. In Sparta, babies were killed, eugenics were practiced, and supremacy was valorized. The most honest atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche, condemned the slave morality of Christianity and wanted to return to the ethics of Sparta. You know, even the word atheist, um, even the word atheist is in a way a part of the, of, the, of the king's victory because, you know, atheists today don't write books disproving the existence of Odin or Thor or Zeus or Athena um, they're all fixated on the God of Jesus. And even as they write against him, someone like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, um, even as they write against him and try to show that he, 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 was, he was not good or God is not real or not great or whatever, uh, they always are you know, buying into his ethical vision. Uh, as, as an example... Um, Peter Singer is probably the most famous ethicist in the world today. He teaches at Princeton University, and uh, he is an extreme utilitarian, and he's also an atheist. And he weighed in on the coronavirus restrictions last week in the New York Times Magazine. Listen to what he says here. He says, um, if we're thinking of, of an entire year of this kind of lockdown we're in right now, then we really, we really do need to think about the consequences, other than in terms of death, from the virus. I'm thinking in particular of the consequences that are horrific in terms of unemployment, which have been shown to have a very serious effect on well-being, and particularly for poorer people. Maybe some of the affluent countries can get through this, but we have a lot of poor countries that just have no possibility of doing so. So what he's saying is like, um, we need to think about the restrictions and the damage they're doing. 
we always think of the deaths of the people um, that are caused by the coronavirus. But he's saying we have to think about the poor and the, the most needy countries, uh, the people who are most devastated by the restrictions we're placing. And I'm not saying he's right about that. What's interesting to me about that when I heard that was this guy um, believes that helping the poor and the needs of the poor are the greatest, most important thing that is out there. And you, you probably agree with him on that. And, and what's so interesting about that is that he didn't get that from the Greeks or the Vikings or the Romans or the Visigoths, that the Son of Man brought that. And that is his victory, that a guy even like Peter Singer um, would, would be so, had, would have bought into the, the morality of the King of Kings, hook, line, and sinker, completely. And it's a beautiful thing, and I'm so glad Peter Singer and other atheists do buy into that morality. Um, Jesus said, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. This is probably the child that he just healed. He then takes the boy. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus takes the little boy, puts them in their midst and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. In other words, that um, this is, this is like, this is who I want as my disciples. This is the one, this is the one that I lift up, a child, this boy. And if you're a child and you're still paying attention, um, those of you who are kids out there, imagine you're, you're, in a, you're in an adult meal or a, um, a party for adults. And imagine that some adults come around you. You know, usually, usually you're probably not noticed very much. But imagine if, if an adult, um, a bunch of adults come around you and they say, can you tell us your opinion on this? And they start listening to you and maybe even taking notes and treating you as like the guest of honor at the party or the dinner or whatever it is. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? If you were a child and the, I mean, the adults don't do that, sadly, but that's what Jesus is saying we, we ought to do in the kingdom of God. That in the kingdom of God, um, the ones who are most overlooked and uh, the ones who are not often addressed for their opinions, the ones who are not often taken the most seriously, he's saying that is greatness in the kingdom. He who is least among you is the one who is great. And one commentary that I love, Joel Green, um, he says, Jesus turns a social pyramid upside down. He's undermining the very conventions that led the disciples to argue as to who is the greatest. And I love that idea of a pyramid being flipped upside down. So if the empire is a font, is a, is a pyramid where everybody's trying to get to the top, you're trying to climb over each other to get to the very top of the peak and be the most influential to be the, the, the most um, you know, sacrificial, whatever it is, the, the, the best parent. Um, if that's the empire, the kingdom is like a funnel. It's flipped and you're all sliding down to the bottom to be with Jesus. And um, you know, this past, last, for whatever reason, the last 48 hours, um, I've just been really bothered by um, comparison um, and um, just comparing myself to other pastors, having talked to some people on the phone, uh, taking a walk. This is all my own sin, but it's just been really getting at me. Um, and I, this, this passage has been fighting against me and saying, you don't, need to, um, you don't need to be jealous or compare yourself um, to get to the top of the pastoral peak. That the call, and this is so hard to believe, but the call is to just to drop down to the bottom. And Jesus says that even the Son of Man, 
did not come here to to be served by a bunch of people and get to the top. The Son of Man came to go to the bottom and to serve and be and give himself as a, as a ransom for men. And I'll just end with this quote, um, Tom Holland again, where he compares the cross to an earthquake that rocked the ancient world. He says, uh, the idea that someone who suffered the fate of crucifixion would be enshrined not only as a god, one of the deities in the pantheon, not just that, but as the one and only creator of the universe. The idea that someone who suffered crucifixion would be regarded as that, that was a seismic event in the history of thought. It sent reverberations through subsequent millennia and created a conviction that the suffering of the weak and the poor are touched by the divine. And so that's what we celebrate, or don't celebrate this evening, but want to desperately. Um, The fact that the poverty and the weakness of the kingdom is what overcomes and undermines and sabotages the power and the pride of the empire. And one reason that we miss it so much is because um, without the elements, we're just not, it's just not hitting us quite the same way. I mean, we can survive and we can do this and we think it's right for the reasons we've said before not to participate right now. But we're, like I said a, a few weeks ago, we're waiting kind of like for a second coming almost. Like we're waiting um, to receive Christ again. So let me pray for us as we move to our last song. Lord, oh, help me to believe these things. It just seems so unlikely to be true sometimes. And I, I fall right back into the thinking of the world. But uh, we long for you to help us all and to really help us believe that the greatest um, in the kingdom is, is forgotten, is not regarded, is not um, the one receiving the praise, is not famous, uh, is not the one who is successful or rich or um, anything that the world defines. In Jesus' name, amen.